From the University of Alberta Alumni Association, it's What the Job. I'm Matt Ray. Hello and welcome to this special episode of What the Job. We recorded this one live on Monday, May 30th, 2022, as part of the Life After University webinar series. For this panel, entitled The Non-Linear Career Path, I was joined by former What the Job guests Christina Rinaldi, Jessica Vanderberg, Nisha Patel, and Evan Hu. They offered up loads of advice and stories about their career journeys and the divergent paths they took. And they took some questions from the audience too. It really was a fun episode with great conversations, and we thought we'd share it with you too. So I hope you enjoy. I think we'll start with Nisha, if that's okay, because the last time I talked to you, you were just wrapping up as Edmonton's Poet Laureate. So I'm wondering what you're up to now. Yeah, so I did a two-year term as the City of Edmonton's Poet Laureate. I was also working in the nonprofit sector as an executive director of a local arts nonprofit. Um, Since then, I actually returned to graduate school here in Kingston, Queen's University, um, and I'll be continuing graduate school in the fall uh, after I finish my MA to start my MFA uh, at UBC. Um, And so all of that has been really exciting. But in terms of kind of like job situation, uh, throughout the whole pandemic and, and in that time, I've been really reliant on artist work. And so a lot of kind of commissioned work, freelancing, uh, freelance writing, that kind of stuff goes hand in hand with being in a creative role. And so like, you know, I've had creative projects that have wrapped up that have been, you know, um, a large part of my income. And now I'm kind of in a phase where I'm looking to Um, have more balance. And so I do some work part time, and then I do a lot of creative work that's usually supported by grants or other uh, funding organizations. So it's kind of an odd career path. Um, As an artist, you you kind of do a whole bunch of things. Most artists do multiple things at once, and I am really no exception to that. One thing that struck me about your job, I remember when we chatted, and, and sort of the job of an artist is all that entrepreneurial aspect to it, the business aspect to it, and then also having to be good at art. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, like I, I did my I did my undergrad at the School of Business, and I think the most transferable skills are not necessarily like how to write or like how to write a poem or or create art or you know take photographs, um, which you can all learn on your own. But it was like the Trump the the skills that I learned. Uh, from that degree, you know, like, how do you manage pitches? How do you connect with a client? How do you meet a deadline? Like, those are all things that I had to learn through university and have been like really directly applicable because as an entrepreneur um, artist, like your product is you, your product is your art, your product is your feelings. And so um, the difference is like, I think like very thin, it's a very thin line between like an entrepreneur who sells a product uh, versus an entrepreneur who is an artist. Jessica, the last time I spoke with you, you were the Assistant Dean of Outreach in the Faculty of Engineering. Uh, Is that still what you are? And can you talk a little bit about that job? For sure. Thanks for the invitation to come and join. And it's a great honor to see everyone here. Um, I'm also joining from Treaty 6, Métis Nation Zone number four here in Edmonton, Alberta. the title has shifted a little bit, but the portfolio is the same. So I sit as the Assistant Dean Engineering Community and Culture in the Faculty of Engineering. So 
this portfolio, um, I was trained as a chemical engineer, graduated from the U of A. I also have a master's in chemical and mining engineering. Um, and, but the portfolio that I hold here for the faculty is very, very different than that. So it's um, looking after the student experience when students aren't in um, seats learning from professors or in research labs. It's all that in-between space that really creates a full um, experience for a student and helps them grow in ways that aren't always explicitly taught that you learn with experience. So things like K-12 outreach, we do um, our discovery organization, the summer camps, and we sell engineering boxes. We run a lot of mentorship programs. We run a lot of orientation programs. We do a lot of um, initiatives uh, helping to look after um, and give students the in-person experiences with um, being part of project teams, uh, competition teams, student clubs, student groups. Um, we do experiential learning through a new program called Engineering Connects, which is founded on the Cree teaching of Lakotoan, where uh, students get a chance to work in community and learn how to do proper community consultation and engagement. They're G GBA plus trained. So all sorts of really fun, innovative, um, inventive ways of supporting students, but especially advocating for cultural shift within the engineering profession. So equity, diversity, inclusion, truth, reconciliation, wellness also fall within this portfolio. So very different from what I was trained to do. Yeah, that was something that struck me when I chatted with you is that, you know, when I think engineering, um, I think more like those hard skills, like there's a lot of knowledge and know-how, it's problem solving, um, things like that. But you're in this role that seems like a lot of soft skills, relationship building, um, outreach, uh, connection, and that sort of thing. So. Um, I'm looking forward to, as we chat, because I know we're going to talk about paths, talking about how you develop those skills um, as an engineer. Yeah, perfect. Looking Sorry. forward to chatting in a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I muted myself by accident there. Uh, Christina, you are a professor and a registered psychologist. Um, I'm very curious about the different elements that are involved in that job, especially as a professor, because uh, you know, you're researching, you're teaching, you're doing committee work. Uh, what's all that like? Yeah, um, it is uh, hectic. <laughs> it is a lot of multitasking and, um, but I'm training, uh, so I get to teach at the undergrad with um, the B.Ed. program and with the graduate students. I'm training future psychologists, so for sure I get to practice and um, really focus on what kind of work in providing and looking over um, students' work with clients and with um, with um, the public. So to hold those hats, those different hats, is I never thought I would having to do multiple roles at once, but you mentioned research. So there's those research teaching about how to actually conduct research that's meaningful for practice. And, um, and a lot of psychologists, um, I think they think they're gonna practice and that's what they're gonna work and they're gonna work in hospitals and clinics and maybe private practice. And then they realize, oh, I actually have to collect some information. So it's interesting to see how, how they do that too. Yeah, it's so it's I find it what's really interesting about careers in general um, is that there's always these preconceived notions about what it is that the job does. And then once you really start talking to the people in them, you'll learn that um, 
you know, it's vastly different. And I think we'll get to that as well as, as we go along and talk about different paths and the different ways they twist and turn. Um, and, uh, you know, last but not least, Evan, last time I talked to you, I remember you described yourself as a serial entrepreneur. Is that uh, still still true? What are, what are you up to? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I probably, probably have the most twists and turns, I think, from the group. I must have the record because multiple careers since I left university. But right now, um, I took a, a twist about after my last startup acquisition, which was in 2014, I took a little break did some executive coaching, but decided I wanted to get more into the investment side. So I was angel investing and was a general partner in a VC fund. And through that, uh, learned that I don't love investing. Um, actually, I like company creation and working with people and coaching. Um, I know it sounds a little weird. I don't actually find the making of money very interesting um, or fulfilling. Uh, no offense to the finance people or private equity people out there, but it wasn't my bag. And so I've actually pivoted back just before COVID. Um, myself and uh, another co-founder, we set up a small, uh, we call a digital uh, health venture studio. Um, so we work with uh, early stage digital health companies here in, in Alberta. Um, and uh, we give them uh, uh, coaching and um, we call it uh, heavy lifting um fractional executive supports, we actually do work with them. And if there's a mutual fit, we actually take an equity position in these companies um, and actually take executive positions part-time. So right now I'm, a, I'm the chief operating officer for a uh, electronic, micro, electronic medical record company called Ava and coaching two other digital health startups, uh, the founders. Um, so keeps me plenty busy and, uh, it's very far, actually, if you look at my path, my, my undergraduate degree at U of A was mechanical engineering, and then I did a master's in engineering management. Um, but I've, I've been basically a software technology uh, startup guy for the last 25, almost 30 years now. So It's interesting that you talk about um, that sort of, you know, values and the thing, you know, you said you don't, you don't really care about the world of making money, um, with apologies to people in finance and whatever, but... Um, following that path of what are your values? What are you interested in? What are you wanting to do? And I wonder how many of our guests, and maybe you can just raise your hands. How many of you made the pivots that you made because you felt like you were following either your values or doing what uh, was more interesting to you? You know, you're all kind of nodding along. Yeah. One way or the other. It's, it's hard to identify that. Um, and I think sometimes it goes back to where maybe perhaps where you started off, um, I think that's kind of where I want to start right now is that sort of um, time after graduation and, and maybe some of those first steps that you took and maybe they were deliberate and they have taken you to where you go, where you, where you wound up now, or perhaps they were uh, a direction that you ended up changing from. Um, and I'd like to maybe go back to Nisha for this one, because I remember Nisha talking to you about working in politics. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I, I left business school and I worked in municipal politics. Um, I worked out in Strathcona County under Mayor Roxanne Carr, and then I went to St. Albert and I worked under um, Mayor Nolan Krauss. And that path was one that I had really wanted. I had worked in electoral politics for a long time, and it was something I was really serious about pursuing as like a young political staffer with like a faceless identity behind multiple portfolios, yeah. 
And then can you tell me a little bit about working in that world of politics? And then what was it for you where you just decided that you wanted to, you know, was art always in the background for you? And how did you make that decision to start to start something new? Yeah, for sure. I started writing uh, poetry after I left university. So um, seven, about seven years ago. And it was something that I started doing as a hobby. And honestly, like in politics, you do things that people tell you to do to kind of achieve this goal of like touching individual lives, right? I had always believed that. I thought municipal politics was like really the level that interacts the most with people. Um, you know, like one-on-one, -on -one, you provide services that people need, you, um, you know, you provide roads for hospitals and stuff like that. And that goal didn't really change, but I found that as I started doing poetry, that was like very personal and very um, vulnerable, that I was connecting with people in a way that, you know, like politics didn't. And I think I had like these rose-colored glasses about what I think politics can achieve. Um, and it was also like, very frankly, like it was very sad for me to be in a position where, you know, you believed in things. And by the time they got watered up to leadership, those values were no longer reflected all the time. Right. And so that was something that um, was very crushing for me, very emotional for me. Um, and now, like as a very emotional poet, I can recognize that those emotional needs were not being met in that career path. But there's a lot of people who do find value um, and are able to reconcile, you know, working long-term at some of these goals. And I think like, I just needed that immediate gratification of like, you perform a poem at like an open mic and people are like, oh, thank you for doing that. Or, oh, I really connected with you. Or I really understood, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that you can, uh, you can connect the two. And I think that's probably true for everyone. I mean, even I think of myself like, when I, when I finished my PhD, I did sessional teaching for a little bit, and then I went into communications. And, you know, a lot of the academic work I was doing is really about communicating. But always in the back of my mind, too, was this creative side that I like that I didn't really get to harness as much in academia, but I do in communication. So it is kind of interesting how all these things connect. Christina, I'm interested in your path a little bit um, to become a registered psychologist and then and become a professor. What, what was the sort of first step towards that? Or what was the first step after you graduated from your undergrad? Did you know right away that this was the path you wanted to go down? Well, everybody was asking me what I was gonna be when I grow up, right? Uh, as soon as I was graduating. And I only found out during my degree that um, I couldn't become a psychologist with, a, with my bachelor's. And in fact, I had a long road ahead of me if I wanted to continue on. Um, it really depends on the province that you wanna work in, in Canada. And I'm sure that applies worldwide um, according to the, the jurisdiction you wanna work in. But I had to get a master's and then, and then gulp when they told me, well, actually you need to get a PhD as well. And you have to do uh, a year long internship and a bunch of practicum. And I was like, this. <laughs> this is a long path. I'm not a psychologist with my bachelor's in psychology. And um, so you're kind of like at a crossroads. And am I going to invest in this? Is this really what I want to do? Because it's a it's a long term investment. And so I only registered after the PhD was complete. Did I actually submit all my um, credentials and information and hours that I put in um, to the college? 
And what was it that solidified for you that this was the right path, that this was the path that you wanted to keep going down on? Well, it wasn't it wasn't really simple at first. Um, in, during my master's, I ended up doing a study on sibling rivalry and family conflict, which I don't know, I think is fascinating. I still do. I'm totally biased, but um, but uh, there, there's lots of great stories and information there. And um, and then I, I knew that um, mental health was something that was really interesting at a time when it's always been important, but um, I, I'm probably, you know, I graduated a, quite a while ago. And at the time, um, I had to explain and even defend why I would want to become a psychologist. What in the world do psychologists do? Do we need psychologists? So a bit was like I had to be my own cheerleader and explain actually this really important thing called mental health. And it, it, it you know, can make a difference in the world. And um, so, I think I kind of like doubled down in a way and said, this is really important. And I think people need to know. Um, and I'm kind of like surprised that at the time that not many people even understood. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised when I myself, as I started the journey, didn't know what it would entail. But I thought people knew about the discipline and the subject matter. But even now, after COVID, I think... Um, people are talking about it more. Perhaps there's less stigma, but there's still a stigma attached. So that was really an interesting dynamic for me as I was pursuing this career choice. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense of trying to find a purpose in your work. Um, I know we did an episode on burnout a long time ago, and one of the causes of burnout is, is that you just don't find any purpose or value or meaning in what you do. Uh, and for those in the audience, when, when we did our episode with uh, Christina, it was actually focusing on um, family in the pandemic. And, you know, a lot of people homeschooling their kids at that point in time is early in the pandemic and trying to balance between um, work and parenting at the exact same time and wondering what the impacts are going to be for our kids. I'm sure we're still wondering what some of these uh, implications are going to be for children. So uh, it's all very fascinating. I suggest you go back and listen to it. Well, let's move on. Uh, Jessica, uh, your path is interesting. What I find interesting about you is you come from a very small town um, and you came to be an engineer. Um, and then from there, you've gone on all kinds of different paths. So how, how was it that you decided engineering was the path you wanted to go down? A great question. Yeah, I grew up in, in Northern Alberta um, and I'm a 60 survivor. So just to give some clarity, what that means is that I was born to two residential school parents, um, but was put in the foster adoption system. So I was adopted into a pretty inclusive German farming family. Um, the closest town was 67 people, so a really, really small community. And I hadn't heard of engineering. Um, my adopted family, my family, um, oh, they went into the trades, the construction. My mom decided to be a farmer. Uh, she was uh, immigrated from Germany. Um, and just wanted to completely change her ways. And so off she went to become a farmer. I hadn't heard of engineering until grade 11 when we had a guest speaker come to our chemistry class. And by that time, I, um, I was a Victorian of our high school. Um, a lot of paths were open to me. Um, I knew universities where I wanted to head. Um, I didn't know really what. Um, and I was thinking of medicine at that time, but engineering being a very introverted, shy kid, um, was a lot more appealing than having to operate on people and deal with people all the time. So 
um, I switched to engineering and I'm very thankful that I did for sure. Mm -hmm. And then I, I think we're going to get a little bit to winding path, but why don't we just get at it now while we're talking about it? I mean, why not? But I'm very curious if you can just talk a little bit about your path as an engineer and how it sort of shifted and changed and became this, uh, you know, community engagement relationship kind of job. For sure, definitely. So I headed into engineering, like many people not quite knowing what it was, knowing it had to do with math and science. And I love math and science. If um, you had asked me at the time and we did live in the capitalistic world, I would have chosen a more creative path. Um, I was the, I played a lot of instruments growing up, but I love to draw, I love to paint, I love to create worlds of fantasy and things like that. But um, engineering uh, offered a way to combine creativity with this love of math and science, this ability that I had. So um, going through engineering, I chose chemical engineering. Uh, like most people, people think that it's about chemistry, but it's actually about process thinking, system thinking. Um, mass balances, energy balances, things like that. Um, and that actually appealed to me because I like to see patterns, uh, see bigger pictures, see where we can shift things, create change in a positive way. Um, and all the, along the way, I kept my creative hobbies on the side. So I still play instruments to today. My I have two um, beautiful children. They play instruments as well. Um, we like to be outdoors, camping, um, doing all sorts of things like that. Um, but along the way, um, I have always given back to community. Community is something that's just in me that you, you grow your home where you are, you grow your community around you, um, and you should always contribute back. And so, um, as I went through engineering, I became apparent that, um, there weren't so many females. Um, and on top of that, there weren't so many Indigenous people. Uh, often I'm, I'm the only one in the room, the only one in the table, the only one, um, there. And so a lot of my um, side volunteer work went towards STEM outreach. So tutoring math, um, mentoring, career um, talks, job shadowing, all sorts of things like that. And eventually that shifted into board and council work, um, creating national strategies, being part of national projects to shift the culture of the engineering profession. Because when I went through, having tried a lot of different industries from nuclear research to um, pulp and paper, to petrochemical, to oil sand, um, there were a couple of tenants along the way that were always there. Um, things that happened to me as an indigenous person walking in Canada, things happen to you. Racism is alive, um, prejudice, stereotyping is alive, unconscious bias is alive. And it causes, causes a lot of harm. Um, walking with the trauma of um, things like being asked to leave hospitals while you're bleeding or um, asked to leave restaurants or eating your lunch in pornography lined um, trailers or driving something coworkers to the strippers and all sorts of things like that were the reality of, of what I worked in and, and uh, within my personal life as well, um, made me want to change the world. <laughs> so when you want to change the world, um, you do everything that you can. And so, um, especially when my kids, um, when I had two children, it really, really motivated me to change the world because um, I don't want them to have to go through the same path as me. I don't want them to have to experience all that trauma as First Nations kids within this world. Um, and especially if they're gonna follow um, similar um, paths to me. Now my daughter talks of engineering, my son of geology. and um, I, I don't want their path to be as hard. I don't want anybody's path to be as hard. So what I've tried to do along the way is shift so that a lot of this, a lot of these passions that I have 
you spoke earlier of value systems are part of what you do. Um, so I worked as a senior research engineer for 10 years, um, working pure design, um, satisfying that creative side, uh, doing lab scale testing, scaling it up, testing it eventually full size in the mine and oil sands regulators. Uh, like it was a really rewarding work, uh, contribution to knowledge. But once I had my children, I wanted to contribute to people, to community, to culture shift. And so I went off to be part of the engineering regulator um, because I figured I could reach a lot more uh, people that way, advocate for equity, diversity, inclusion, group reconciliation, um, outreach, um, and, and, and make some national change. And so I worked on quite a few projects that really opened my eyes to how regulation worked, how industry worked, how um, government worked, um, things that you aren't explicitly taught ever. So. Um, you know, Nisha's story, you resonate with me, you, you know, you, you sit at these political tables and then you really see your eyes open to how some of these actions and what, how you can influence change. Um, and so that, that skill set grew from um, those six years in a variety of director positions. But um, at that time, again, as an Indigenous person, especially a 60s scooper, you struggle with identity. And so I needed that to be part of the work that I did too. So I wanted to switch more to truth and reconciliation. So I worked directly as a professional consultant for First Nations, Métis, Settlements, Métis Nations, um, working with them to build strong, vibrant communities in whatever way they needed, whether that was infrastructure project management or policy or governance advice or um, writing grants or, or things like that. So I did that, but um, the hard part about that is that the emotional toll was huge. Um, the stories shared with me first at firsthand residential school experiences of the socioeconomic issues, seeing firsthand the wall of children in schools that have committed suicide. Those who are in need and come uh, in the, and seeing people come and try to take advantage of nations and funding and things like that was heartbreaking. And it, it took its toll that I did not expect. So I needed to figure out how to navigate that and uh, find balance again. And so when the opportunity came to join the faculty, um, and still be part of all of those worlds together, that was an opportunity that doesn't come along very often. So it was K to 12 outreach, it's equity, diversity, inclusion, it's truth and reconciliation, it's working with students, it's influencing uh, future generations, how they can do better and, and build the skill sets needed to make this world a better place. I couldn't turn down that opportunity. Um, and then uh, on the side, um, I run a side consultancy firm as well, guiding for consulting. So all of this is leading to just um, trying to combine all my passions, make a bit of a difference in impacting this world and maintain a healthy, balanced life. That's fantastic. It's a really powerful story. And um, you know, you've really managed to, to take the aspects of your life and make them part of your career, which is rare. I don't think a lot of people get to do that in them. I'm glad you've had the opportunities that you've had. Seizing opportunities, I think, is another point that uh, is, as I do these podcasts, as I interview people, taking advantage of opportunities is um, sometimes a scary thing to do, but often uh, often rewarding. Evan, let's, uh, let's turn back to you and talking about career paths. You also started off as an engineer. Um, and what happened after that? Huh. So when Jessica mentioned, uh, you have these funny ideas of what engineering might or not might not be, and I, I, I chose poorly too, because um, I had this idea that engineers were actually industrial designers or designers, because I had a very much creative drawing, designing side, 
And actually, you know, uh, I don't actually like math a whole lot. And it's horrified to discover, oh my God, there's all these math courses, differential calculus and Fourier transforms and all this stuff. And I hated every minute of it, but I was in, like I, I came from an immigrant family, you know, money was tight. I'd already made the investment and I wasn't going to back out. Um, and as I learned, so I went into co-op, which was a huge um, opportunity. I didn't realize how much I was the second cohort and made a big difference because then I learned what engineering uh, opportunities were really about. Um, then I, but I also discovered it wasn't really for me, um, but I was already in, right? And I, I uh, decided to finish my degree because there are aspects obviously I enjoyed. I, I loved the project work. Uh, I loved the, the limited design work we did. Then I also fell in love with software. And, and uh, um, software actually uh, gave me the unexpected uh, opportunity to be creative. Uh, writing code was like, uh, I'm, I'm also, like I was a musician as a kid. I played a lot of instruments and, and with bands and stuff. And to me, writing software is a bit like art at the time, especially back in the day when we had very limited resources. So um, that's where I started to pivot my sort of career uh, so I had that uh, conundrum, which many students have is I had student loans to pay for. I wanted to move on with my life. Right. And I needed a job. So I did get, I had graduated into a massive recession in, uh, in 85 when I was a mechanical. So I got a contract with an oil and gas company here in Alberta. The work was okay, but, uh, the contract didn't go much further because their drilling program shut down. So, but I had this plan B, which come back and do a, 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 ma a master's degree in engineering management, which, you know, for me, gave me the opportunity to do more software work and uh, supply chain analytics. They didn't call it that back then, but it was like uh, Q theory and things, which turned out to be um, a science that was actually very valuable into the 1990s. And uh, I love that. I love the science of optimization, right? So uh, you know, traveling salesman problems and all these kind of things in the real world, which are actually useful um, to have utility to other people. I had I, I started doing that work. So, um, and I discovered that many engineers uh, needed other engineers that understood software. So opportunities just pop presented themselves and I kept grabbing them. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes your um, scarcity and what it seems like a disadvantage turns out to be a door opener because I couldn't, follow the traditional path. Most of my, my, uh, my um, fellow graduates, that they were going down working for major oil companies. They were streamed a certain way. They became drilling engineers or facilities engineers, and they had a certain thing. I was freelancing my programming together, trying to figure out what I was going to do. And, um, and I, uh, I don't know. I, I guess my father parted me with this sort of resilience thinking. Um, he was a, a, a survivor of Japanese occupation, fought in the war, fought in the Chinese Civil War, <laughs> ended up as a refugee in Canada, a student refugee, and worked his way through all of that. And so he kept on going regardless. Um, and he kind of been part of that. And he said, like, you know, it's that whole, you can see the world is half full or half empty, right? So you, you choose, right? So I just had that in me. So, and it didn't matter how many times I kind of, uh, uh, the other one was sort of failure as fertilizer. So failure wasn't shameful to him. And I was lucky for many. My mother was the opposite. She was very worried about failure, very worried about um, uh, appearances and all that and, and, and getting, keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak. So between the two of them, I had this parental friction. 
I was an adult, of course, but you know, you, you never, you're never, you're never an adult to a parent. You're always a child. Um, so between the two, I managed to figure it out, but luckily my father's words, uh, it resonated with me. So I was okay. Um, I didn't like failing. I didn't like falling down on my face, but I would just brush myself off. And I had an early, early discovery and, um, that most people didn't know what they're doing. In fact, the more people projected that they were really confident that actually I realized the less they actually knew what they were doing. So uh, people were just generally faking until they made it. And it never stops, you know. Um, so I would be my piece of advice to everyone that's worried about, you know, uh, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I need more education. I need more degrees. I need more certifications. Eh, don't, uh, don't, don't overworry that. You'll figure it out, right? I mean, uh, one beautiful thing about university education, of course, is, is you've learned to learn. And uh, what I discovered I needed to do more was connect with other people, right? Uh, people that have similar passions, similar values, and similar interests. And things happen when you do that, right? So and that left me very much uh, weaving through a whole bunch of interesting activities. And, um, and I also got in with a like-minded bunch of people who had similar ideas and ways of thinking. So my little social tribe was very much like, you know, what, what, some, what are you up to now? What's new going on in your life? Kind of, and we talk about things pretty openly. Um, and for us, you know, failure was something that we didn't talk in negative terms. It's like, ah, tried this thing, was a waste of time, didn't work out, but I learned something new. You always get something out of your failure. And then we were able to talk it through and they were my friends and, and, uh, and, and supporters. And we also had, uh, we shared a lot, like we shared, leads, contacts, deals, whatever, right? Moving furniture, whatever we had to do. Um, so I was, but you have to invest. And I was going to say the last thing I figured out too was, which engineering school still after all these years lacks because I'm part of Engineers Canada and part of the Change Lab. And it's, um, I call it like the hard, the soft stuff is the hard stuff. In other words, you go through a STEM level of university education, you're going to be good at stuff, you know, your knowledge, your ability to gain knowledge. That's the, that's the hard material, but the soft skills are what you really need to work on. And that takes time, effort, and practice and life, right? And that's where I think the biggest differentiator that I've seen for people who are thriving and not thriving in their professional and personal lives is an emphasis on, um, you know, building your soft skills and building relationships and making those investments. Yeah, uh, and I think we've seen that throughout here. A lot of good advice coming out so far. And I think one thing that I've latched onto is this idea that, you know, uh, and part of this is my own personal philosophy, I suppose, but um, you, you are not your job, but you bring yourself to your job. You bring who you are and your background and all those intersections. Those are going to come with you into your job. And it's great to see so many people um, either advocating for change or bringing themselves and um, making that part of the work that they do. Uh, I do want to keep going on that line about advice, though, because uh, you all work in different um, areas, uh, even if they're similar. And I just want to get your thoughts on some advice for people who might want to get into that field or do that kind of work. Uh, what is it? What kind of skills should they be thinking about or developing? What kind of avenues should they be proceeding down? Are there professional designations that they should be seeking or graduate degrees or, or whatever? And maybe we'll start with Christina 
uh, and thinking about people who are looking at uh, becoming a registered psychologist or, or a professor in education or any of that kind of work, what should they be thinking about? I think volunteer experiences are really good opportunities. A lot of people are like, um, what doors can they open? And often people who have those rewarding experiences and even they're not all the same. So I understand not all volunteer experiences are the same, but um, our, our students who want to test out whether this is something for them might volunteer for crisis hotline as an example, or they might work in the schools. Um, I work with children, youth and families. So it, it's kind of a joke. It, it's like, can, like, have you ever met a child? Have you <laughs> maybe even just like spend some time in a school setting and not be scared of five-year-olds <laughs> as a prerequisite? Well, you, you can build it up, but you do have to know if you like working with the group that you're working with. So those volunteer experiences, whether it's a day camp or whether it's uh, working in more clinical hospital settings are good to give you feedback as well. Um, and, and to figure out, I really do enjoy some aspects of this or not, even though it's not going to be the job that you're gonna be doing per se, it's definitely working with the population and in different settings. And I think what I'm hearing also from a lot of the, um, the shared experiences is that it really varies if you're in a community setting or whether you're in the academic setting, you really do have to change things up. And those volunteer experiences can be really a great, they can be successes, but you can also get what Evan was mentioning, some, some feedback as to, oh, wow, this really challenges me. Why and in what way? So absolutely those have been really good connectors and you might keep those relationships and those connections for a very long time i, I i'd be remiss if i didn't say i'm also part of uh, the canadian uh center for research uh mentoring uh in canada and so um you know being a big brother or big sister my little plug i mean it's it's a wonderful thing that as well um especially for uh anybody who wants to work um, as a psychologist. Yeah, and so often in the conversations that I've had on the podcast, volunteering, mentorship, those are our two keys, especially if you feel stuck somewhere, having a good mentor that you can bounce ideas off or a group Evan was talking about, having, having people that you can talk to and get advice. Uh, I know I've done that. We just had a coffee with someone and chatted about, you know, what do they think? Because I think sometimes it's really hard to recognize you know, yourself to understand uh, uh, where you're at and who you are and what are your strengths and, and getting that kind of second opinion is, is a good idea. Um, Nisha, maybe we can talk a little bit about that creative career. One thing that just always, um, when, I, when I talk to you, that I think the thing that struck me is like, for me, it would just be absolutely terrifying to put my art out there in front of other people. Um, and I think to do a creative job, you know, because we all have hobbies, people have creative hobbies, whether it's music or writing or whatever, but to put that out there in the world, to try to make a living out of it, to put it out there for criticism, um, it must take a lot of courage. So I'm curious how you do that and how others who maybe think that they want to try to make a living as an artist, where they might start and what they might need to do. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't mean to like go against kind of the grain here, but I do think that under the system we live in, like under capitalism, the artistic career is not made to be 
be sustainable uh, without quite a bit of effort and burnout. Um, So I would say like, one, you're still an artist, even if you do it as a hobby or you do it part time, or you only make a certain part of your income from it, or even if you don't make any income from it, you know, um, the hours you spend putting into your art, hone your craft. And that craft speaks for itself stronger than your entrepreneurial spirit or anything else, right? If you have a craft that other people value, you know, for whatever reason, the attention, I think, will will come to you, right? As long as you're truthful, as long as you're authentic. Um, But I would say that there's so many different permutations and, you know, ratios of like how much time people spend making a living off their art versus how much time people spend creating art. And there's so many different avenues to do it. And so, especially for me, like I supplemented my artistic income with nonprofit artistic management, right? So I was in this like arts adjacent career and some of those networks were the same, you know, I could hire artists and work with the same artists who I also saw as peers or mentors. And that was very valuable to me. There's other careers where you can go and you can get an MFA to try to teach a a huge portion of my practice and a large part of my income actually comes from teaching it comes from, you know, going out to schools and finding uh, learners at every stage, you know, anything from, you know, learners with cognitive disabilities, all the way to learners who have ESL, um, you know, or in FSL courses, or like mature writers as well, you know, I've done writing residencies, I've done writing mentorships. And the income stream actually comes from all over the place. And so, you know, if you are trying to, you know, do the concentrated career in the arts, um, I would say in Edmonton, especially, and in Canada, like, you must be a good teacher, you must be a good friend, you must be a good mentor, because most of the work you get is going to come from other artists. And so I think like capitalism teaches us that we're always at odds with one another, that we're fighting each other, that we're competing for resources. But in reality, those strong connections to your community are going to be what give you the opportunities to succeed as an artist. Um, And I think like we have to fight back against this notion that we're in it for ourselves or that we work independently. And once I started doing that, the opportunities became more numerous. I would also say that you know, if you are able to balance uh, your, you know, your your stable income, you can have more unstable income for more creative projects, right? So let's say you work a part-time job that takes care of most of your bills. Well, you can spend your free time getting really good at something or in your art, and maybe eventually that will become your stable income, right? I am a self-taught artist. That means I haven't up until this year gone to school for art, I spent the majority of building up my career as a self-taught artist, right? I was a self-taught poet um, that became a poet laureate. Like these are things that happen because of a dedication to refinement and a dedication to community, not because of a dedication to any degree or anything like that. The reason I'm pursuing an MFA in the fall is actually so that I can teach at the university level. So at certain levels, there are gates that are still closed unless you have qualifications. Um, And one of those gates that I have recognized that I would like to have opened up is to teach at a university level as like an associate professor or as like a sessional instructor even. Um, And for that, you need what we call a terminal degree, which you have, uh, which is a degree where you don't have to get another degree after. And so in the writing world, that degree is a master's of fine arts um, and sometimes a PhD. As an aside though, like it's so weird. I started this master's of arts here in Queens um, to help get into an MFA program. 
and I study disability politics and disability theory as an, as a disabled artist. It's like a really big part of who I am. Uh, and I'm actually finding that I love theory, like I love disability theory. So I don't know if that's going to lead to a job ever, um, because I don't know if theory teaches us how to like sell ourselves, but it does make my world richer and it makes me feel like I connect to the world around me in a more deeper way, which has in turn deepened my art um, and my kinship ties to my family and to my partner and to my future relations. And so. Like, I don't, I would say, like, I wish more people could delve into those kind of philosophical matters, but under capitalism, like many of us can't, and many of us don't have that privilege. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, I'm all over the place. And whatever your artistic journey is going to be, it's also going to be all over the place. Yeah. A very good reminder in there that we should be cognizant of those um, structures and forces that impact career journeys, whether it be capitalism or colonialism or patriarchy or whatever. Um, especially as we give advice, it's probably important to recognize that this advice will hit people differently depending upon your own background and experiences. So uh, I do want, I want to go over to Evan though, because you know, Evan and Nisha are both entrepreneurs uh, in their own different ways or have experience in that. So I, I'm curious, Evan, about uh, your thoughts on this topic. Yeah, I um, I guess I'm, I'm a proponent of broadening yourself. Um, you know, uh, you know, like doubling down in more of the same is, is you know, I mean that that's a path that you could take. It depends on you know what your goals are. But for you know, for me and and many of my my colleagues and my friends, um, we're kind of bought into more of a polymathic experience. So. Um, we see that diversity and experience is inspirational and, and, and brings innovation. And I see that all the time in the work that I do in, in digital technologies. Um, you find that the vast majority of people um, in tech don't have computer science degrees or diplomas. You know, in fact, the best developers I've ever worked with, th three of them, um, one's an MD, like a family physician who switched gears. Um, Two other two, something bizarre. They're both economists, um, and they we call them ten x developers, right? So they literally are ten times as productive, code wise, as the average developer. You'll see this whole meme that goes on about ten xers. It's real, you know. I'm like a one point five xer at best, so I'm pretty mediocre coder. That wasn't my secret strength. As much as I love to code, I'm not that good at it. But the point I'm making is that. Um, the accreditations and stuff uh, aren't nearly as important as the experiences you amassed, right? And and your ability to work with others, that's the other thing. I mean, in my world, nothing's done single or solely. Like all, all sort of the suburban legends of success, the libertarian view of like, I stand alone, I pull myself my bootstraps, I call bullshit because I've seen from every story, there's a team there. Um, there's a group that did the work. People got support from many, many angles. And, and uh, the narrative is much more um, collaborative than it is the, the lone individuals. There are a few out there. Of course, there are. But the vast majority of projects and startups and ideas or whatever are community and team-based, right? Um, so I think that lends to, you know, getting out there and, and, and meeting different people, working with different people, right? So uh, not only do you, should you have a, like a, a broader education 
uh, experience or learning experience. I don't want to hesitate to use education because the other shift that's come, um, like in tech, I don't know if people have been following, but uh, many of the large institutional hires like Google, Amazon, IBM, they've dispensed with the necessity of an undergraduate degree, right? Say it, we don't care anymore. It's nice. They do hire, you know, it, it's a leg up. And uh, I, and same in my startups, we we generally, we, like I can tell you, we never look at your grades. We don't care, right? We're more interested, well, if you have a degree, it's helpful. And if a degree is related, helpful. But we're looking at your experiences. We're looking at your mindset. We're looking for those soft things. How well do you work with other human beings? Uh, can you, and do you have a learning mindset? Like, in other words, like lifelong learning, because in our world, the technology is always changing and you're having to reinvent yourself constantly. Um, and if you don't have that mindset, you know, you're not going to thrive in our, our, in our, in our work, world work. So, so we're, we're very interested in actually, I call them lat lateral hires, people who have related experience, but don't have the specific skills. We're willing to invest and train in them, right? Cause they, they, they bring the diversity of the experience. And if they can be taught into some new technology, that's a massive advantage for us as a group. So, um, and there's more of us thinking like this. I'm not saying the majority, like the, the larger, more conventional organizations are still more, we need to have a four-year bachelor's degree or a two-year diploma. And you need to have this, you need to have accreditation, but that's starting to shift a lot, right? So, um, you know, it's just, what we see in my little area, so I wouldn't want to suppose into other industries, but certainly in, in technology, um, it's very much uh, what you've what you've created for yourself. Yeah, and you know, just talking to your point about being able to get along with people, uh, I remember we talked to somebody. Uh, they worked uh, for a video game company, I think, and they talked about how their hiring has a, a no jerks policy. They use more mm -hmm. colorful language, but I think you see that a lot too because um, we forget that most work, any work where you're interacting with other people is sort of like an odd social experiment and you have to be able to get along with people. It, you know, well, we, we coined back in the nineties, my first start, we had a no assholes hiring policy. Yeah. That's what he called it. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm sorry. I'm going to say that we, we started, we did that in the nineties and it was the same thing. Of course you learn that as prima donnas, especially in the development world, those like claim to be God's gift to coding and a coding God. I went, okay, that's a bad sign right off the bat is what I discovered. And then, um, yeah, it's, it's a team effort. And if they make the place, the workplace psychologically unsafe, in other words, every time was when you have, you're going to have disagreement, you're going to have differences, opinion, direction, you're going to be, especially when you're in a tight spot and you're just trying to ideate your way out of it. And if someone is basically that person who's making, you know, devaluing people and basically tearing them down. Um, of course, most of us are unfortunately are too polite to push back. We just shut down and, and nothing happens. And you get sort of the emperor's new clothes phenomena where no one wants to say anything anymore. And, or they just leave like in our industry, mobility, it, uh, job mobility is very high. So people just quit. I, I said, you know, screw it. Right. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm done. I, I'm not going to deal with this, this person's ego. And, it still continues in our industry. There's many, many toxic works environments uh, in tech. You know, you know the programming cultures we call it, right, are out there, and they're they're infamous. Uh, less so in Canada than the United States for whatever reasons, uh, but it still exists. So, um, you know that that uh, that uh, that it, it's a balance because you got to be you got to be you know you got you got to be um, a, a, you have to be opinionated, right? 
but there's a way to do that, right? Um, and that's that's an emotional intelligence skill. That unfortunately, most of us that come on the university, we don't get any kind of mentorship or training on developing that because it is a developed skill, right? Um, so it's, it's almost a, it's a human art that 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 uh, we need more support on. So um, and I see. I see it more and more becoming more important uh, and, and rather than less important, interestingly enough, uh, as uh, we go to hybrid work environments, because um, human connection actually becomes a little more difficult. But that is that's a that's a reality in, in certainly in tech of hybrid work environments. So. Uh, and I want to go back to Jessica so that she can talk about skills in uh, in her field. And then I think if there's questions, we'll try to get to them. Um, so Jessica, I don't, you can choose uh, engineering or talking more about outreach. But what are the uh, you know wh what are the things that uh, lead to success in that role? For sure, definitely um, a lot of of the skill sets and um, experience that is gained that have been mentioned are of, of huge value, right? Like we, we already heard around um, uh, having the courage to take opportunities when they come, being able to see those opportunities. Uh, these are all great things. I know for me, growing up as a, an extremely introverted person, um, public speaking was a huge one. So I knew that's something that I needed to um, tackle head on. And as an, with an engineering mindset, again, of um, being okay with failing, but just practice and trying and practice and trying. Um, the skill set grows in public speaking was one of those things. So I took Toastmasters in university. Um, I was fortunate to be media trained early on, and this was invaluable to be able to speak in forums anywhere from, um, you know, newspaper um, interviews to now we have podcasts, of course, but up to CBC. Um, I was working for the oil sands in a controversial time. So being able to handle some very controversial conversations in a diplomatic way, learning the art of redirection is invaluable, <laughs> directing the conversation um, back to, to where you wanted to go for your messaging. All these things were skill sets that um, really, really helped me. But the biggest thing, of course, is building confidence in small ways. This is also something that comes with practice. And it comes from a multiple places of little things, like just even taking a different route to work every day, um, just being comfortable with going someplace new, traveling or trying, um, you know, um, making it a point to ask a, a question at your next conference or um, trying a new, a new restaurant or going to the movies alone or um, just putting yourself in situations that are safe, but um, test your comfort level. And you grow your confidence in small ways. And then next thing you know, like your um, the opportunities come to you. The other thing as well is to put some time into that self-reflection and um, put some thought into where you're headed. Because once you have an idea of the general direction, you don't have to choose your career. Um, what I'm thinking about is more along the lines, like for me, like Evan said, it's like he's not so much interested in the money. Uh, the money helps, of course, 100%. We live in this capitalistic world, as Nisha said. But we need to, but if, if your goal is to be healthy and passionate about the things that you do, and um, if you want to start a family, or if you want to make the things that um, you care about, your passions part of your career, you have to know what those things are, right? So um, just putting some thought into that self-reflection of, of what is important to you um, and where you want to spend your time. And the biggest thing for me in all of that is, is learning the humility teaching that the elders teach us. Um, 
learning to um, not always make it about yourself, make it about other people, know how to admit mistakes and apologize and how to forgive and, and know how to um, just walk in a humble way um, makes a huge difference. So I don't think anybody's asked questions, which is uh, kind of amazing to me, but it means I get to ask more questions. So that's awesome as well. Um, so when we do the podcast, we normally have a little bit of a lightning round at the end where I ask a bunch of uh, just rapid fire questions. And I think one of them that's pretty good and maybe good for an audience like this, because I know after I graduated, especially after I graduated with my PhD, I certainly felt stuck. I didn't really know um, what it was that I could do. Uh, I knew I didn't really want to be an academic. Um, no offense to any academics here, but uh, it wasn't the world that I wanted to be in. Um, I did like teaching all right, but uh, I, did, I, I didn't think I could make a living at it. Um, so it took me a while to try to figure out uh, uh, where I want to be. And to be honest, I don't even know if where I am is where I always want to be. I think that's one thing that I learned is that you can constantly change and keep going. So I'm curious um, for you guys, if, if like some quick, you know, elevator pitch style advice, um, if somebody feels like they're stuck, what are some steps they might be able to take? And um, uh, let's let's just start with Nisha because I always go back to the left side of my screen. Yeah, for sure. I think the the best thing to do if you feel stuck is like I think everyone has a gut instinct, and in that we're trained to rely on professionals for advice or self help books or even sessions like this. But like getting in tune with that uh, is a practice. You need to practice understanding your instincts. Um, and those instincts will tell you whether you're on the right path or not. You know, I, I do feel a sense of purpose on this path and one that I was afraid of going on. Um, and that in itself was an instinct, you know, that I was afraid so much of failing. And that's how I knew I had to try. Yeah. Like that failure is fertilizer line that I think uh, Evan gave earlier. And you know, I think, you know, for me going through grad school, that made me more scared of failing. I don't know why. It's a, it's a stressful environment. But anyways, um, Christina, what's your, uh, if you're feeling stuck, what kind of advice might you have for people? Well, talking to others, actually, I mean, both, both kind of like perspectives of like thinking and doing that self-reflection. I think Nisha mentioned it. It's come up. That's really important. So sometimes you need to tune everyone out out and then focus on what's important at the same time connecting with others sometimes gets you gets the ball rolling in other words talking to other people and hearing about their experiences it just sparks like some of those innovative ideas and, and kind of thinking I mean I mean you coined it with the name of this podcast non-linearly and and not necessarily focusing on just those components so sometimes I think where I see students uh, or those who I've mentored sometimes get stuck is when they only see the path as one way. Um, so sometimes it's like just to push yourself to think that maybe you will end up there, but to try something adjacent or try something different or, but by connecting with others and hearing their stories, I always love it because you have a whole group of nonlinear people here or experiences and and just that can be really reassuring so it can get you a little unstuck 
there, there's a question in here for Evan specifically, but I think I'll let Evan and then Jessica answer it because it is about uh, engineering and STEM. Um, basically, Evan, someone's asking that you, you had mentioned that soft skills are hard for STEM students to learn, at least, at least in that sort of uh, university degree context, let's say. Yeah. Um, how would you recommend the STEM students improve their soft skills? And then after evidence is <laughs> Jessica, I'll throw, I'll throw this one to you as well. Well, they're not actually hard when I mean, they're the you know, soft stuff, the hard stuff. It's just that, you know, I think STEM students in particular, were kind of trained and conditioned to learn more about the hard stuff, the math, the physics, the design, whatever chemistry and stuff. We're just comfortable there, but um, we don't exercise that, uh, you know, our, our, our skills and strengths to develop soft skills. And it's, it's more time put in. I think, I think it was Jessica talked, for example, about Toastmasters. I'm a huge fan of Toastmasters too. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a very Asian household where uh, children were to be seen and not heard. Certainly you wouldn't talk up against an adult. And, and uh, I thought I was an introvert. I'm not clearly an introvert from a psychological uh, five-factor models perspective. I'm very extroverted, but I had poor public speaking skills, which made me think, you know, uh, I couldn't get out there and express myself. But um, so the thing about for STEM students is it actually, it sounded like that journey of a thousand leagues starts with this first step. Just put yourself out there and tell yourself you're going to fall down. You're going to screw up. You're going to say, you'll, you'll do a little public speaking thing and you'll completely mess up. Um, Things like Toastmasters, you'll have peers that'll help you with that. You just practice, right, in a safe place. Um, the thing I, I got some good advice from mentors that said, you know what, frankly, most people don't remember what you say anyway. <laughs> they remember the feeling, actually, of what came out of your talk, for example. And if you ever watch really good public speakers uh, or comedians, if they stall, for example, they just stop talking and let 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 sit there, and then they, then they think about it and they motor on and and. For those of us that when I still, I still have this problem, I go, holy crap, I got to say something, say something stupid, say something. And it feels like it's an attorney where I've said nothing. It's actually been a millisecond. And that went away for me by just speaking more and more. So I went from being unable to speak and, you know, I don't do that very often, but speaking in conferences with three, 5,000 people, I mean, 22 year old Evan would have been terrified, probably fainted or gone into a corner sucking my thumb before I would go out there. And it was just getting out there and doing that. Um, the other thought I do have, uh, by the way, in our sort of over social media world, stop caring about what people that, you know, are hurtful or, or, or opinionated say about you. Just ignore the, ignore the, don't feed the trolls and ignore the trolls kind of a thing. And just do you, do you, right? Um, you know, not to say that you're going to be arrogant and, you know, spewing crap out there, but have some confidence that, if you've got a, a message to be said and, and you've been thoughtful and, and, and about it and stuff, then you deserve a platform and say what you need to say and be okay with that. And don't worry about it because you're going to get conflicting opinions or, or, or negative opinions and it's okay. I know it's hard, but it's, you know, I've got to point for me, it's like water off my duck back, right? Kind of just, so what? And, and I've learned that, that I've been okay. I've had enough people to say, Hey, you're actually okay. Evan. what you're saying makes sense to me. And, uh, you know, I have that community of people. Uh, you don't want an echo chamber, obviously. There's always that classic fine balance. But um, if it's worth doing and saying, you're, you're going to get the opinion out there. But, you know, it just starts with practicing. So uh, get out there. I, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, other, uh, my other colleagues here said similar things about putting yourself out there, ne networking with people outside of your comfort zone. 
I could, I could see it as an engineer's, I would go that old stereotype when I was on campus. I didn't go to the art side of U of A, <laughs> right? So all the engineers are on the West side and there's cab in the middle and the art students tend to be on the hub side back in my day. I don't, I don't know what, you know, and it was kind of that weird stratification. And then I discovered, Hey, other interesting people out there that are doing interesting things. And then, you know, they become your friends over time. And then it just, it, it massively improves your thought process because that becomes, you know, sort of fuel for your creative, creative thinking. So, well, I think uh, that's actually one of the benefits of a, of a university education in general is that is the vastness of it that you have access to all these different sides. It's not just a vocational training. I want to keep us going though because we have a lot of questions. So, Jessica, I don't know if very quickly, do you have any thoughts on engineers developing soft skills? Yeah, first of all, I want to correct the terminology a little bit. Soft and hard skills is old terminology for sure on this. Um, as mentioned before, um, people are starting to move towards competency-based knowledge, skills, abilities. Um, it's the whole person that we're, we're trying to develop and look at, right? So um, we, we want to make sure that we know that part of that is, is um, how people interact with each other, what they learn from a technical side too, um, where engin the engineering profession um, is headed towards is, of course, um, we work in the public interest. That's that's our, our mandate when we get licensed, right? And, and so in order to do that, we need to understand how to work with different demographics, understand engagement, understand innovation, the value of different perspectives and diversity. And then how do we build inclusive belonging places so people can just thrive as they are in the true authentic self. So um, being able to work on all these skill sets is tough because we work uh, because we get our degrees at the University of Alberta at different academic institutions around the world where um, the methodology of how we teach hasn't changed in 100 years, right? It's still lecture style, you still teach boards in some of these places. Um, but develop, the developing programs, event, uh, initiatives, events that develop the whole person is, is where we're trying to head because you see engineering regulators moving towards competency-based assessments. We see, we heard it in the conversation today that companies don't care if you have a degree, we care about your wisdom, your experience, your truth, um, and how do you show up with your values, right? And, um, and so the only way to do that is to develop yourself in a whole way and find that way to be balanced and centered as you walk forward. Great, thank you for that. Um, there's another question here about uh, that sort of like sunk time or being in too deep. You know, if you've invested a lot of time and money into a career path that suddenly doesn't seem like it's the right fit for you, when do you know to, uh, to make a change or how do you make that decision? Uh, I feel like any of you could really uh, answer this one because you've all had those sorts of uh, direct journeys. Uh, maybe Nisha, maybe you could take a stab at this one since you did, you did a degree in commerce and then you were in politics, that all seemed to kind of line up um, and then you, you made a change. Did you ever feel like you, you had sunk all this time into uh, working in municipal politics and uh, it's, too, it's too late to change? I think any time you spend learning where you don't belong is just as valuable as time you spend learning where you do. And there were a lot of transferable skills. And it was so funny. I spent three years in politics hoping, you know, the mayor would notice me or the councillors would notice me. And you know, years later, I was poet laureate in front of them, you know, and they were, they had to listen, you know, I, I was there and I was speaking to them directly, um, not as an assistant or an EA or anything, but as a peer and, a, and an equal. And, you know, like, sometimes you end up in the same rooms uh, without intending it. Yeah. 
I was, I was going to jump in there too, is that um, on that note, um, not yeah, nothing's a waste. Every experience has value. Even the ones at the time, I, I definitely have some crap experiences, almost humiliating experiences. Um, but you learn from those. You could, you could, you could, you can choose to take that and 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 try to bury it and not learn from it. But I, I've taken the path of saying, you know what, it wasn't the best thing. But what did I learn from that? And what am I going to do with that? Right? And uh, someone asked, the, I think you asked the question about investment. I mean, I, I think it, the sunk cost fallacy is really dangerous. In other words, like for me, mechanical engineering, I don't do anything around you know traditional mechanics. I haven't done it for years. But the education was extremely valuable for me because I have an incredibly solid basis uh, in, in basic physical sciences, right? And I draw it all the time. I, I have a whole bunch of other side gigs that I've been doing over the years. Like I design bicycles and adaptive mobility things uh, as part of a not profit work that I do on the side. That's more my hobby activity. But of course, I, I know how to calculate gear, uh, gear mesh designs and blah, blah, blah. Stuff that I went, huh, came in handy. Or I know where to research. So I think that, it's fairly um, self-confining if you think, okay, I spent you know four years in undergrad and, and did a master's in some very, very narrow esoteric area, and that's all I can do. There's a lot more out there, and, and uh, you just have to start trying experiments. That's what I would recommend. And I recognize that it's easy for me to say. I, I certainly wouldn't tell people, well, throw that away and switch gears, and it'll all work out. It, you can do small experiments. You have to obviously sort of meet your Maslowian needs of rent and shelter and food. Um, so there is limited maneuvering room, but what you I think you'll discover is that the more experiments you do, the more insights you get, opportunities will open and present themselves. But, um, you know, there is some serendipity that comes with that, but you kind of have to engineer that serendipity, so to speak, create those opportunities. And lastly, but not least, if you don't ask or put yourself out there, nothing's going to change. So there is a bit of risk and there, it, that's just life. I think, um, just to be, you know, I would counsel you not to take foolish risks or high risks, like roll the dice, but calculated risks, set yourself up for success, try to do as many things you can to get there's, you know, uh, the way I, uh, I've approached it anyways. It's my, that's my personal experience. Just really quick, Evan, because someone asked about it. Like, there's other questions I want to get to as well, mm -hmm. but somebody asked about, you talked about um, this art of being opinionated at work. So without sounding like you've got got a big ego or something, but how mm. do you share your opinion at work, um, even if you're you know scared to do so? What's what's the secret there? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean that's one of those read the room, right? See who's in there and whether it is safe. Because if you're in like in a toxic work environment, you're not going to be able to do it. So you got to find an alternative method. So assuming you're not in that, um, you know, I guess. You know, there's a skill of being um, humble but assertive. So you don't attack other people. So the one thing is you never attack someone else's self-worth. So if they present an idea um, and if you challenge the idea, say, you know, I'm not so sure um, that this technology stack is something we should pivot to. That's the kind of argument we uh, argument discussion we have a lot. Like there's a new technology. We should replace what we're doing with this new technology. And there's always a sort of almost religious fever of people taking sides. And, and if you can be that reasonable person in the room, say, you know, I've thought about it. And, and there's a couple of advantages, I think, to this new approach. I know there's a few challenges. That's what I always do is like, I try to as much as show that I've thought this through. It's not one-sided. You know, I don't make it an ultimatum. I make it an open discussion. And I say, you know, like, I'd like to hear opinions. Like, what do you think? 
right? And ask that. Um, the other way is also just if you're challenging someone, don't challenge them directly, but just ask them hopefully open-ended questions. So, you know, if they say we want to do this and you go, so can you, can you tell me more about why you want to do it that way? You know, start those kind of things. I mean, it, it can't happen overnight. I guess that's one of the challenges. Like you, you develop relationships over time. I mean, I, I, like, like I was a big fan of Stephen Covey's work. I was very fortunate in early my career that I got Stephen Covey training by one of the companies I worked with. So seven habits, right. And then they had this construct called emotional uh, bank account. And it's essentially it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a metaphor for building relations where you have to make deposits and then you can make withdrawals, right. That's basically relationship building 101. Your professional and personal life is no different, right. So I have very good colleagues I can push hard on and they can push hard on me and we don't get offended. I love it when they challenge me and they, or they, they go, holy crap. I, my usual moment is like, holy crap. I never thought of that. Damn it. Back to the drawing board. I want that to happen. I absolutely want that. Cause then I know, you know what? I've got some really opinionated, smart friends who've looked at my stuff critically and they found a few flaws and that's good because it's highly likely that I build anything that's perfect off, off the bat. So you want that open criticism, but that's, that takes relationship building to have that level of psychological trust amongst each other. Right. I, I know Google did a lot of work on psychologically safe workplaces. If people want to look it up, there's, it was called project Aristotle. And, and that's what they looked at high functioning teams and the biggest biggest factor of high functioning teams was not the intellectual capabilities, the team members or the skill sets or any of that stuff. It was psychological safety. Yeah, Therefore equals to, trust. Right? We're back to the, uh, to the, to the no jerks kind of policy thing. I do want to keep going though. And I know Jessica has her hand up. So I'll let Jessica speak. And then I think we've got one or two more that maybe I can get to. For sure. Just on the side of speaking up and offering opinions, especially as a minority demographic in the engineering profession, where it's a profession where um, there is a large, lot of large personalities and a lot of opinions and being more of an introverted person, um, you have to learn how to create the space for you to offer opinions as well. And as you move into leadership positions, being conscious of the different types of communication styles and creating the safe, brave spaces for people to engage in the conversation. So it's different meeting formats that I find work really well. Sharing circle style works very well. So people um, don't speak over each other. Um, you get the space, you can use it or you, you don't need to. Um, making sure that uh, people feel safe uh, to share their opinions because often in the engineering profession, if you have some very large personalities and very large opinions, um, there isn't always the space uh, to offer something different. Um, there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of um, um, bias that comes in. Um, and often um, when people are workshopping ideas, um, people will from time to time take that as criticism rather than people just throwing a bunch of ideas on the table. So it's making sure that you um, set the stage in, in the conversation that um, people are bringing ideas to the table. It's not shooting them down and being very conscious of saying, folks, I'm offering this opinion. It's an opinion only. It's not criticism, but this is what I think, right? And making sure that it's framed in a way um, so that people, of, um, so that everyone feels welcome to, to not take it in the wrong context. Christina, I think maybe this is a question that uh, you might be able to answer because it's about uh, talking to your to your supervisor, perhaps, or, or colleagues, but you probably have students you're working for. And I, I, maybe I'm internalizing this, but I frame it as a PhD myself. But um, how how do you should you communicate with your supervisor or colleagues? And this could be at work or I guess in academia about um, wanting to pursue another type of job or career without negatively impacting 
uh, the work relationship and, and still getting a good recommendation letter at the end. And I don't know, especially, I know you talked about how it's a long journey for, for your degree and perhaps people have a, a change of heart or direction. Yeah, no, I mean, I can't speak for all supervisors, but I would hope that a supervisor is there to support you in your journey and one size does not fit all. Uh, and I actually have to get to know my own grad students and um, what their style is, what their learning style is, and um, feedback is even different with each of them. So it's not going to be the same kind and how I can give that. But if they want to switch, they need to have, you would hope that the relationship starts off with open communication and that they're able to uh, feel comfortable and safe. I think we hear a recurring theme here that they're able to bring it up. Um, I think if you're, you are able to, I, I, it should not impact a letter of reference or getting or, or applying to different kinds of things. In other words, the work that you're doing and under the supervision should be something that can speak for itself. But if you're, I mean, the, you'd be surprised at how many reference letters and all of these different kinds of things or application supports for awards and scholarships that happen as part of the role of, uh, of a professor and a supervisor. And I see it personally as a success for me when my students do well and graduate and become and are kind of like junior colleagues in training anyway. Um, but I think I think the question then is how to broach it. Perhaps there's a little bit of concern. There's it sounds like maybe in the question, and I think it would be important to really be upfront. It's about communication, and um, maybe the frame it as how what could we do to support me on this path in this way. And um, there are great resources at the university as well um, that, that hopefully would support someone if they did not feel comfortable. But I would hope that they could. If that question was asked to me, I'd be like, yes, I want to know where you see yourself, where you would like to go. What are some of the kinds of things? Because I'd, then I'd be brainstorming with the individual as to what we could do to build their portfolio. Excellent. And I see Nisha answered that one in the chat, but maybe Nisha, you'd like to just address in case other people were wondering as well, just advice that you'd like to share with artists who are trying to find opportunities to showcase their work. Yeah, there is, uh, every city has its own local arts bodies. Um, and so you can find them at the municipal levels, you can find them at the provincial levels, you can even find some federally. Um, get onto those mailing lists. Sometimes you can join membership into your specific union like Carfac or the Writers Guild or something like that. Um, and all of those will have newsletters uh, where someone is literally paid to curate opportunities at every level, right? So you can rely on that community knowledge to introduce you to contests and open calls and stuff like that. So that's one really great way where you can do that behind a screen um, and you don't have to connect with a, a person if you're not quite ready to do that yet. The second thing would be to put your work out there at open mics or open calls or opportunities. So if galleries are showcasing, if there's like an open mic for music or poetry or something like that, that's how you get people to hear you. Um, and many of these things are going to be done for free for the first while. You know, I don't think I was paid for a gig until several years in, which is why it wasn't the thing I did full time for a long time. Uh, and from that, people will see you because community organizers and community curators are at these events too. 
attend events, um, be at those events, volunteer with those organizations like poetry festivals or artistic festivals if you can. Uh, and yeah, get on those mailing lists because they're, they email out sometimes as many as 30 opportunities uh, a week that you can look into uh, for your field. Yeah. Thank you, Nisha. And really, thank you, everyone. We've kind of hit our time and it's been a great discussion that the only thing that's, uh, that makes me sad is like, I, I can't do another episode with you all over again, because it was very fun. And I always like hearing about these stories. And I'll say, I've learned so much uh, that I've even applied to my own career path as, as I've gone through um, from doing this podcast. So uh, it's very useful. And I know careers are a scary and weird thing. That's usually my thought about them, but they're also necessary. So um, being able to have advice is crucial and uh, good luck to everybody on your journeys. I'll throw it back to uh, Jen. And again, thank you, everyone.